Well, that would be an amazing backbending gymnastics yes. event. I want to see Joan Moore do some gymnastics if you could. Too. <laughs> it's What's not they- pretty. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jabber link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Adventures in Angular. Does your team need to master AngularJS? Oasis Digital offers Angular Bootcamp, a three-day in-person workshop class for individuals or teams. Bring us to your site or send developers to ours, angularbootcamp.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 112 of the Adventures in Angular show. This week on our panel, we have Ward Bell. Hello, hello. Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. John Papa. Lucas Rubelke. Hello, Ward John and Lucas. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Um, if you missed it, we just had Angular Remote Comp. Um, you can still get the videos. Just go to angularremotecomp.com, and I will have that all linked up so you can get the videos. Now, today we're going to be talking about upgrading from Angular 1 to Angular 2. Not, don't call it upgrading, call it migrating. Yeah. Up-migrating. Migrating. Yeah, by the time this is out, Angular 2 will be out. Angular 2 has released. It is a thing. RC19. <laughs> exactly. Well, I, we should be on Angular 2.02 by the time this releases... <laughs> <laughs> oh, you guys. You guys. <laughs> so before we get too deep into this, I want to challenge the premise a little bit. Does everybody mm. need to upgrade to Angular 2? or are there Absolutely be, not. Are there no. going to be instances where people can just, hey, I'm Angular 1, I'm good? So everybody but Lucas should upgrade. Lucas ah. should stay. I get a hall pass. <laughs> he, loves it. he loves Angular 1 so much anyway that he's going to teach us how to downgrade from Angular 2 to Angular 1. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> if it was legal to marry <laughs> Angular 1, Lucas would marry it. That's it. No, uh, definitely not everybody should should migrate to, to Angular 2. Uh, I certainly have some strong opinions on who should and, and when and why, but I'm interested to hear what other people have to say about it as well. Well, I'm kind of interested in attacking your opinions, but I can't okay. do that until you have you voiced know them. them. All right. So, well, first off, we should frame this th- so that everybody knows. I've been like eyeballs deep in Angular 2 migrations for uh, several months now. Been working through a migration on a reasonable, reasonably sized code base. Nothing huge. Um, I've got a lot of experience with huge code bases as well. So I've been able to extrapolate what I've been learning about migrating a medium-sized code base to what it would be like to migrate a large-sized code base. Uh, and I've worked with Ward and the documentation team to sort of refit what the original plan was for migrations and uh, make some changes that would work better for large code bases. So, can, can, Joe, before you go further, can I challenge yeah. you on what does the word migrate mean? Okay, so... 
Yeah, good thing. Let's let's define that. Work work and define this as easily as I can. There is a product that Angular Two has released. It's part of Angular Two, and it's called uh, NG Upgrade. Okay, and its core piece is this upgrade adapter component. And what that allows you to do is actually run Angular One and Angular Two side by side. And the point of it is, for when you have an Angular One application that you want it to move slowly to Angular Two. Well, the speed, I guess, is relative. Depends on how quickly you move. But you want to move it to Angular 2, then you can use this these components that they've provided. And it allows you to run Angular 1 and Angular 2 side by side in the same application. And they can share state and change detection. They can share services. And we can I can kind of get into exactly what they can share. That takes a minute to describe. But it allows you to make a migration of your application. So rather than I've got to rewrite it, you know, there, there's probably three clear choices that you've got when you have an Angular 1 application and Angular 2 is now released and you're wondering what to do. Obviously, option one is to just leave it alone. Just keep it in Angular 1. Or option two would be to completely rewrite it. Just close the doors on your Angular 1 application, maybe leave it running for the time being, but rewrite an Angular 2. And when the Angular 2 application is up, you replace the Angular 1 application with the Angular 2 application that replicates all the functionality. And the third option is to migrate, which is to take your one Angular 1 application, start using, using these new pieces, start running Angular 2 within the same application itself, and slowly move the application, basically piece by piece, page by page, sort of, sort of say, over from Angular. In fact, I shouldn't even say Angular, but page by page. Really, it's piece by piece from Angular 1 to Angular 2 until at some point, and maybe and there, within that, I think there are definitely two clear choices that will happen here. One is that at some point you finish everything off and you do have an entirely an Angular 2 application, but I think there's a, we're going to see a lot of applications that get partially moved and never get fully moved, and they'll live like that forever with part, part of their app running in Angular 1 and part of it running in Angular 2, which, again, I believe is totally fine. All right. Well, we may have to contest that. That <laughs> I mean, that in broad strokes, are your, those are your big choices, and then there are places in between. Yes, absolutely. A lot of places in between. A lot of places in between. But that is, in a nutshell, what migration is. So it's running the two side-by-side side within the same application and then moving up. So, so Joe, you've done a few of these already, mm -hmm. and I know lots of teams are exploring this. Is it worth it? I mean, is the net result of, I mean, migration is just a nice word for saying you're going to have an Angular 1 and Angular 2 app living together with shims. Right. So is an end result something that uh, people can live with long term? Absolutely. Working with it, I think it's fantastic. I think that the way what they've come up with exceeds any expectations I had. In fact, if we could go back and look at old episodes of this show and we would hear me saying, I believe that everything that they're talking about with NG Upgrade is the whole Dog and pony shows smoke. Mostly I was talking about people publishing on their blogs that, hey, rewrite your code in Angular 1 to look more like Angular 2 and it'll make your migration path easier. And I thought that was a whole bunch of malarkey and a bunch of baloney. But what they actually came out with uh, that allows you to migrate not only exceeded my expectations of what they would do, but it also made it so that there is a lot of validity to that idea of spending some time rewriting your Angular 1 code uh, to look more like Angular 2. Not specifically just to look like it, but there's specific things you can do to it that will make the migration easier. And would make your Angular 1 code cleaner. Potentially. So it, it, has, 
it has an immediate effect um, as well. But before we even go there, because I really, because this really show, it really is about that kind of tooling and and the apparatus that you're about to describe. But I I feel what John is saying, or rather, is hinting at, and so I want to put a bold face on it, which is that it may actually be easier. And I hope you'll you'll uh, put some pressure on this idea. To simply say, nah, you know what? The the clean uh, way to do it is to bite the bullet and redo it in his Angular. T- now, before you gag everybody out there who has a big Angular One app, I want to speak from a certain kind of experience, which is not that we have taken an Angular One app and converted it to Angular Two, but that we have taken another app written in an entirely different technology, which theoretically should be harder, and simply redone it. We consider that to be the prototype, the 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 definition of what the application ought to be able to do. And use that as the occasion to completely rewrite it in Angular 2. And I'm talking about an application with well well over 200 screens and 300 uh, entities in it. And that was possible within a three-month time span. So, do you have any idea what the number of lines of code that was in that? I mean, 200 screens is indicative, but not necessarily... Right, and I don't have that stat, and that would be that would be good. But since it was in another technology, it happened to be Silverlight, it's hard to make a direct comparison. Uh, I could tell you what the final lines of count were if I knew what they were, and I shall come back and find out. Um, But but I don't think there's it's an open shot case, right? And so this is I'm not making the statement that one shouldn't be paying attention to what uh, we're about to learn, but rather that. You need to be able to assess both the time that you have to bring this off and where you think your future development is going to go and take a swing at it. And one of these will be um, the the right choice for you. Um, The other thing that I was going to push back at that Joe said that worries me a little is the idea that I will forever have an Angular 1 and Angular 2 hybrid. Now, he's certainly right that it will fall out that way. But is that desirable? Is that the okay thing? Because if that means that you have to have a team that is uh, conversant in both Angular 1 and Angular 2 and figure out where the seams are and how they come together. I'm not sure I'd want that cloud raining on me uh, <laughs> for the duration of the project life. So I, I know that'll happen. We all know that'll happen. You'll run out of budget or whatever it is. And words, and words you're going to need a team who is very uh, self-aware of how to live in both worlds at the same time. Exactly. And that... I find that worrisome, and that is almost the biggest threat to me, um, the, the biggest warning sign that suggests that what Joe is about to tell us is something you should approach with suitable caution. And, but now that we framed it that way, clearly, Joe, you're excited about this, and, and we want to yeah. hear about it. Hold on. Can I just address a fundamental assumption that I think is, is wrong, and that is you're talking about Angular 1 being one world and Angular 2 being another world. I would rather, or I would push back on that and say when you write Angular 1 in an Angular 2 style, the difference between those is not worlds apart, but it's actually very, very similar to the place where you could actually pick up pieces of it and use it interchangeably in an Angular 1 app or an Angular 2 app. And so I just want to be make this point that I don't think that they're worlds apart, but actually very similar 
when you write your Angular 1 applications in a specific style, the biggest one using ESX classes and modules. So, All right, so can we put a pin in that one and get back to that one? Because I would love to discuss that one as well. Sure. Yeah. So well, let's go back way, to... But, but before you leave it... Ah, ah Joe! <laughs> would you please tell... Would you, would you please tell them that when they're running both, when they're when you're running the hybrid, you are carrying a the load of both frameworks, both mentally and physically. Let's talk about performance later, and let's put a pin on that one as well, right? What it's like during the pro time period when you're running them both together, uh, performance-wise, and so on. So let's go back. Your original question was. What apps should move under your original thought was what apps should move under what circumstances? You gave this example of a very large app you migrated within three months. I think you and I, Ward, are probably on the same page, although we might fall uh, a little bit f away from each other on the spectrum as far as uh, maybe optimistic versus pessimistic, right? My experience in working in, with applications large and small and many large and companies, it, it's not... It, it, the application size has a lot to do with it, but the company has even more to do with it, right? Where you're at and what it's like, and I'm sure you guys have all seen this exact scenario, right? It's that is really the key indicator as to what you should do. And you have to take your application into consideration there, but it really is resources at your company, the management attitude at your company about these types of things. And my experience has been definitely a lot more pessimistic. I've lived many, many, many times in the world of applications that have been maintained ad infinitum while waiting for budgetary approval for the new, the big rewrite um, and features pushed off and pushed off and pushed off unnecessarily while, and, and pushed off by me. Uh, I've, def, I've been at a place where I have said, I will not touch that application. If you ask me to touch that application, I will leave and I will go somewhere else. But I will not maintain that application, and, and you know I was only only the only one of two developers, so I meant that nobody could do anything to it, right? I've been in that situation before, so I've seen all these sides of this. Um, I think that companies tend to be far too optimistic, especially developers, in their estimation as to what they can do. So it comes down to if you should rewrite or if you should not, is how long will it take you, and while you're doing it, what will be the cost on your business? So. Um, if it's going to take you a month, you should almost for sure rewrite it. If it's going to take you three months and you know it's only going to take you three months, you should, I guess you should probably rewrite it. But my guess is that most people that say it's going to take us three months have no idea how long it's going to take them and it's really going to take them nine to 12 months. And so let's talk about what it's like in that nine to 12 months while you're trying to do a rewrite. And there's been some really brilliant talks uh, and blog posts about the same exact thing about the Grand Rewrite. Uh, Uncle Bob Martin talks uh, has talked about this certainly before. I've listened to him talk about this a couple of times. In the case where you're rewriting some very critical, very important application, and that rewrite drags on 9, 12 plus months, you've got the existing application that is critical, that has to ser serve the users, and you've got the new application. Now, that existing application does not live in a vacuum. Your business needs change. So you've got a new feature that's got to come out, and it's got to come out for the existing application. It cannot wait. It cannot wait nine months uh, for the new application to come out. So you have to go and add that feature to the old application. What does that mean? That means that the resources you're spending writing the new application get drawn away. And the longer that you take doing this, the more resources will get drawn away while you have to add this new feature to the old application and fit it into the new application. 
you already spec'd out the existing feature set based on the existing application, and now you just added another feature, so you got to fit that one in too. So you got to write that feature now twice, right? And for the, whatever time period you've got both of those applications running, you are now writing those features twice. That, of course, doesn't exist for everybody, but in that scenario, it can become hell, and it can make it drag on forever. I, I agree. Uh, my only uh, extra comment would be, if you're looking at it and you're scheduling something out as a nine-month event, maybe you shouldn't be leaving Angular 1 at all. Oh, that's, yeah. So that's interesting, and I, I would definitely offer a counterpoint to that and disagree with that, in, not necessarily universally, but there are definitely cases, and maybe mm -hmm. I think a lot of cases, where that's not true. But... <laughs> My point would be, if you are listening to this show and you're thinking, we could rewrite our app in three months, you better rethink it. Because your idea of three months is probably nine months. And by the time nine months comes around, there's going to be enough bloat that happens to both sides of it that it's going to be 12, 15 months. And potentially, the common scenario where the new app is ultimately just abandoned because it's just never getting done. And everybody just goes back to the old app and you spend nine months of your life wasting your time writing an app that will never see production. So I, I hate seeing that yeah. scenario. And this ng-migrate really is, is built to address that, right? I think anybody who considers rewriting an app, forget the technology. We're talking the migration strategy here. But before you even think about rewriting an app, you have to really think about, am I doing this for the technology or am I doing it for the business purpose? Absolutely. Right? Because if you're doing it for the technology... Most cases, my experience, and never say all, but most cases, that's not the right reason, and that's usually a death trap. But uh, there doing is it for the one, business reason is better. There is one overlapping concern there, and that is hiring devs. Remember the scenario I was just talking about where I said I would not touch that app? I mean, this is, this is because it was an app written in ASP, not ASP.NET, ASP. And right. you know, this is like 2006, 2007 or whatever, and I just wasn't going to waste my time building a skill set in a dead technology. Right? I agree if that technology's been dead for a decade, yes. But if the right. technology's been dead for three days, then I right. don't think so. <laughs> yeah. No, <laughs> right. Certainly so not the scenario for Angular 1. Uh, well, well let, me throw, five, let, me throw a, let me throw another wrinkle into that, which is often uh, uh, the compelling business uh, reason is that the Angular 1 app that you're talking about, you didn't do a really great job of that. It kind of grew as a ball of mud because you, nobody really knew what was needed anyway. And so you you see this as an opportunity to um, uh, you know redo it right this time and get onto the new technology and position yourself for new hires. So there's a there's a yeah. there's a potential confluence of um, uh, business reasons why right, this would be a good reasons. thing. They're yes. always, uh, John's right, it's always business reasons, and I think what we've all done collectively here is give the consultant's answer to any question. It depends. <laughs> it depends. Yep. But, Joe, I'm a developer. I, I love and I agree really? with really most of what you and were saying. But you know what? I'm bored. I want to know what the changes are that I have to be aware of to get to the migration. All right. So, if I understand you correctly, you want to talk specifically about what it's like to migrate from one to two now. Right. Yeah, I'm being, uh, yeah, being tongue-in-cheek, but tell me, what are the easy things, what are the things I have to do, and what are the gotchas? Oh, well, there are some pretty heavy gotchas to begin with. What is really cool about this whole ng-migrate, uh, or ng-upgrade, and the upgrade adapter and how this migration plan works, is that it allows you to migrate a piece at a time, right? And we're going to come back to that uh, app living forever in Angular 1 and Angular 2 as we talk about this. So, from a very high level... Let's talk about Angular 1. Angular 1 has quite a few different pieces. Controllers, directives, 
services, filters, right? Those are your four main pieces in Angular 1. And we've now got this thing called a controller, or sorry, a component in Angular 1, but really a component is just syntactic sugar for a directive. Now, we've only mentioned four, but really the one of those pieces directives actually has three different kinds of directives. Structural directives, which is like ng-repeat and ng-if, and you really don't write those yourself, so it's not your own code, you need to migrate. You've got component directives, which are directives that are represented by an element, they have a template, and they, you know, they exist somewhere on the page and they have some display that goes along with them. And then you've got your decorator directives, which are things like ng-click, and you might write a few of those, but mostly you're going to write these component-type directives. And that's why this new component function is so awesome in Angular 1.5, right? It just wraps all that up and makes it nice and neat, okay? So you got component directives, and for people that have done Angular 1, you'll have probably faced this scenario where you got to a point where you weren't sure if you wanted to do a subcontroller or a top-level controller or a component directive. And you really weren't sure, what should I piece out this page into more directives or more components, controllers? I'm not really sure. Those two things, controllers and component directives, really serve the same purpose. So their analogous piece in Angular 2 is a component, right? Services have an analogous piece in Angular 2, which is services. Then you've got the decorator directives in Angular 1. They have an analogous piece in Angular 2, which are called directives. And then filters have their analogous piece, which is pipes. Of those things, there are some of them that you can now, with ng-upgrade, share between your Angular 1 and Angular 2 app at the same time. So let's talk about the simplest case, which is services. If you go in and you do the, little, the steps that allow you to make uh, to start using this ng-upgrade so that you are... Um, my, you're in the migration path, you're now running Angular 2 and Angular 1 side by side, you could take one of your Angular 1 services, you've not touched any of your code really yet other than saying, I now want to run the two together, and you can take one of your services and you can say, I want this service to now be available to Angular 2. I want to, I want to upgrade it. Okay? You're not actually rewriting any code. You're just telling the framework in there, you're telling Angular 2, hey, go and take this Angular 1 com service and make it so that you can now talk to it. And then you could go and write a brand new component in Angular 2, and you can have it talk to that Angular 1 service. It can make calls to its methods, receive the data back, and do whatever it wants. Because ultimately, it's just JavaScript. So you send an, you know, you make a method call, if it returns an int, your Angular 2 component gets that int back. So now you've got this Angular 1 service that can now service, that can now handle components on both sides. It can talk, it can be, inside a controller in Angular 1 and inside a component in Angular 2. Then you can do the same thing with component directives in Angular 1. You could tell that component directive, I want you to be available to Angular 2 so I can have an Angular 2 component. And let's say that you have this Angular 1 component called user info. So it's, it's represented by the element user dash info. And you say, I want to upgrade you. You're, gonna, you're not rewriting it in Angular 2. You're leaving it alone in Angular 1, but you just let the framework know that it's now available to Angular 2. So if you have this Angular 2 template and somewhere in there it has its element tag, user-info, it's really calling into Angular 1, and that part, part of the DOM is going to be owned by Angular 1, where the parent part will be owned by Angular 2. So you now have these Angular 1 pieces that are now available to Angular 2, and you can do the same exact thing backwards. You can write an Angular 2 component and make it available as an Angular 1 component directive. So if you take that same user-info and you completely rewrite it in Angular 2, all of your Angular 1 pieces that still refer to that directive can still refer to it. You don't have to change them very, you have to change them very little. 
and to make some small syntactical changes to how they talk, how they call to it and pass data in. And then the same thing with services. If you write a new Angular 2 service, you can make that service available to all your Angular 1 services and controllers and component directives and just make it available as an Angular 1 service. So it makes it this very nice, smooth piece. So imagine you've got this application that's got 200 pieces between controllers, component directives, services, and you can slowly, one piece at a time, take it and migrate that one piece from Angular 1 to Angular 2, and then you downgrade it so they're still available in Angular 1, and you slowly move that. And as you go farther and farther, and now you've got like 180 of them, then most of the pieces don't even need to be downgraded anymore because those 20 pieces that are left over only use a few of the new pieces. And then pretty soon you've migrated them all over. You're not downgrading anything, and you can finally just turn Angular 1 off. So it's very smooth. It's, a, it's really awesome, the, the actual technical path for it. It's really great. There's a couple of bumps in there. One is the decorator directives. They cannot be shared, so you have to completely rewrite them. Same thing with filters. Filters and pipes, they can't share the same code, so you got to keep those in parallel. But generally, you write very few of those things in an application. So having two of them si live simultaneously side by side is probably going to be a fairly small issue. Yeah, with filters and pipes, I mean, there's almost nothing in those things if they're done yeah, right anyway. Generally, yeah. I can imagine, you know, somebody throwing together some pretty complex, crazy ones. But in, in most cases, you, they're just going to be simple and they're going to be easy to rewrite. Yeah, it's the yeah, directives the things... that are going to do you, right? The directives yeah. that manipulate the DOM directly, yeah. which is a typical thing to do in Angular 1. Uh -huh. That is a tar pit, don't you think? Oh, or yeah. controller bloat, too. I mean, or any bloat. I mean... How many apps have we seen in Angular 1 where we all talk about styles and patterns where you just say, just have a couple of functions and keep things light and separation. But when you open up a real app, sometimes you have a controller or a service that's got 2,000 lines in it. Yeah. And it's doing eight things at once. Those are the things that scare me. And it has nothing to do with migration. It has to do with, oh my gosh, how do I, how do I unravel this? Yeah. Yeah. That's the let's push the reset button on this project anyway. Yep. That makes you want definitely want to push that reset button a lot more when you got places like that. Those will be really hard to move over. Those big balls of mud. They'll get really hard to move over. And there's a few gotchas in there. There's also some some gotchas that I've definitely seen that are gonna be really common. Uh, Angular two uses observables and Angular one uses promises. Okay. Now the tour of heroes example that's up on the Angular 2 website, the little walkthrough, it actually turns all its observables into promises, then it just mostly uses them as promises, just quickly turns them into promises and uses them that way. So you could do that, but you're missing out on potentially some functionality of observables. So that can be uh, a little bit of a challenge in dealing, dealing with the sort of friction, the disparity between observables and promises. And you'd think, well, observables have this two-promise method that just simplifies everything. But when you really get right down into it, it's just not quite that simple. There are definitely real-world use cases where you start scratching your head a little bit and figuring, having to figure things out, especially when you got a service that is uses all promises, right? You know, your typical service that wraps your HTTP calls and it uses all, so it's using all promises and it's Angular 1. And you make a call on Angular 2 and that's okay. Angular 2 can use those promises. Well, then you migrate it over to Angular 2. Well, now what do you do? Do you take it, you'll have to rewrite it using the new Angular 2 HTTP, which returns an observable. So you just turn it back into a promise or do you leave it as an observable, in which case you got to go to all your Angular 2 pieces, which were now using promises because they were talking to Angular 1 code, and rewrite them so that they're now using observables, right? So what you have, what's your, I mean, I, I have an instinctive answer to that. Go ahead. My, my instinctive answer is you leave it as promises, because since you haven't structured the rest of your code 
to be um, to take advantage of observables, there's no advantage to it. What you may be saying is that there are opportunities to go beyond refactoring to achieve the goal right. of going to Angular 2, but there may be opportunities that you're missing that observables afford and that you want to rethink the way your user interaction goes, which is a completely different statement. But, uh, but unless you're investigating that, if you're just trying to get there, uh, I, I can't see a reason not to go to promises, can you? You know, I think that it's staying with promises is definitely very valuable. I can certainly think certainly think of some reasons to go to observables, but the most common case is HTTP, right? Right. And HTTP, with very few exceptions, returns one result. So promise is just fine, right? I definitely when I'm writing with my when I'm writing Angular two and I start using promises, I kind of feel like I'm, I don't know, missing the boat a little bit or downgrading myself a little bit. So I kind of feel a little odd. When I'm doing it, but no, I mean it's a, it's compelling reason to just stay with promises and well, not worry about, about observables. So, Joe, if I'm if I'm migrating though, let's think about the mindset and the persona we're talking about. If I'm in the migration mode, I'm already thinking about my first goal is to just not break anything that's already there and extend the functionality, right? Mm-hmm. So, in that sense, maybe if and I'm not doing this right now, so I don't really know, but. If I wanted to do that, maybe I probably wouldn't want to be involved in learning and adding something new and just really want to keep what I've got. So I could kind of see the point of, if I'm doing this, maybe stick with promises in Angular 2 just for the short term of it uh, until I get the migration moving. And then if I want to uh, dabble in the Rx pool because I see value there, absolutely go for it. But I don't know if I'd go wholesale Rx for a migration because now you're doing two things at once. Right. And I definitely agree with that, that... Focus on just staying with promises. Um, keep an eye open for when observables, but know that there's this mismatch between Angular 1 and 2. And so the more you do dabble with observables while you're in the migration process, the more it will come back to bite you. Uh, but you have to, at least for a little bit, because the Angular 2 HTTP returns observables, so you got to at least quickly turn it into a promise. Which middle. is easy. Which is easy. I, I'm, yep. you know, if I sum it up, I say, let's do one miracle at a time. so that's one of the big gotchas the other big gotcha is routing as of right now and i really hope that this changes but i'm not 100 percent sure that it will but as of right now you are stuck using the angular one router so long as you have your application in both modes with angular one and angular two when you finally get all of your code moved over to angular two and you're ready to turn angular one off you have to take this big giant step. So up until that point, the steps are actually as small as at least the code that you've written and the small as you can make them. So if you've got a 2000 line controller, then migrating that from Angular 1 to 2 when it's time is going to be hard and that's going to be a big step and that's going to be fraught with, oh, we broke something, right? So that's, but that's the developer's fault, right? Up until that, the framework and the tools that are in place allow you to take the smallest steps that you yourself can take based on the size of your code. But at the end, you've got everything moved over, you'll still have all of your routes in Angular 1, and you now want to switch them over to Angular 2's routing. And that is going to be a piece where you've got to turn the whole application essentially off. I mean, you've got to make it so that it no longer works at all with Angular 1. You rewrite the routing in Angular 2, which is not a simple, straightforward thing because of how, if you're using a lot of um, guards, you know, the resolve method in your Angular 1 routing, then you've got to do similar things in Angular 2, and they're very different. Um, you've got to redo so, all of that stuff, and then you can 
finally turn the Angular 2 back on. And that's going to be a big step. And that one's going to be fraught with, oh, something's broken and I'm not really sure what. Joe, are you saying that you can't keep Angular 1 routing and Angular 2 routing living in the same application as of today? Right. Okay. Right. Just making sure. Yeah, as of today, you cannot do that. All the routing has to be Angular 1. That may change. And I really hope that it does because it will make this whole thing easier. But as of right now, the, all the routing has to be handled by the Angular 1 router or the UI router if you're using the UI router. So let me pile on because with some real experience uh, or, or at least I think relevant experience. Uh, there was at one time a now known as the deprecated router, but it was a completely different router than the Angular 2 router uh, in one of our applications. And we have the same sizable one we've been talking about. And we had to move it to from the deprecated router to the new router, which is essentially the process you're describing. Essentially, you mm -hmm. throw out the old routing altogether and bring in the new uh, for an existing application of many hundred pages. And many hundred, and I don't remember how many routes, but it could have been a hundred routes for all I know. That was not fun. That was <laughs> a a week of effort. Yeah. And I don't know. Even if they backport the the they they make it possible to run the Angular two router over the Angular one world. I don't see why how that's going to relieve you of this exercise. Um, you're going to have to go through it at some point because you certainly don't want two router systems. Or are you are you suggesting that holding out hope that there be some way to have have you keep both routers in the same application for a period of time? Yes, that that would be my hope is that that becomes possible. And I don't. Obviously, like other things, it's not ideal. But if you could migrate one route at a time and then check and make sure the app still works, test it, that we didn't break anything, and then migrate the next route to the new router. And then when you're all done, now you've got nothing left in Angular 1 anymore, right? That would be maybe your last piece. Or maybe you do that as you're going along, right? I think that would be very ideal. Boy, I would, not, I would not hold my breath for that one. I, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I've I heard some whispers somewhere that that was something that they were going to look at. I mean, what, we actually talked about this last week, right? That uh, in in the way they're talking I've, about migration, or sorry, I well, thought not last I was week, the announcement episode. Right. I thought what I heard there, and you know, we each hear what we want to hear. Yes. <laughs> what I want, what I heard was that um, it was a question about whether you could use the new router in an Angular One app. So that you could start making your, you could decide to use the exact same syntax and style of routing and, and the whole modalities that are in the new router in your Angular 1 app. That's what I had heard. Mm. That's what I thought I had heard Peter uh, Bacon-Darwin law before, but I, I could be wrong. It never occurred to me, as it occurred to you, because you're in the trenches, that there would be some way to have both routers intersect in some useful way. Well, I was definitely reading between some lines, but Jules did say in, in our announcement episode on Angular 2, she did say that the upgrade, the upgrade adapter, NG upgrade, was something that they were going to be looking at doing more to. And yep. yeah, for me, that, if they're going to do anything, that would be the thing to do. Well, that would be an amazing backbending gymnastics yes, event. I imagine. But... To their credit, I want to see, I want to see Joe and Moore do some gymnastics if you could. <laughs> it's what not they, pretty. What they built with the upgrade adapter is an amazing backbend of gymnastics. I'm just completely amazed that they can make these Angular One services work in Angular Two and vice versa. I think that's amazing. What they did is genius. The original plan 
for migration long ago was you would migrate a route at a time. And people quickly realized that was going to be horrid because any given route might use a service that's used by 35 other routes. So you migrate that one right route, now all of a sudden you got to write that service in Angular 2. You know, everything within a specific route would be either Angular 1 or Angular 2. Well, if you have a service that's used by all of your pages, now you have to have that service in both places and you have to maintain both sets of code. And pretty soon you've got, you know, 50 services that are all maintained uh, by both sets of code and 50 different subcomponents. You know, that user info panel that you use on 80% of your site, that's now got to exist in Angular 1 and Angular 2 simultaneously and all of its bug fixes and all of its upgrades and features. Boy, that was horrible. What they've got today is awesome. This ability to, oh, I got the service. I don't want to move it over to Angular 2 yet. Great. I'll just mark it as upgradable. Now Angular 2 can still use it, but I don't have to rewrite it. And that would bring me to that whole point about apps that could live theoretically forever with Angular 1 and Angular 2. Again, this is the pessimist in me, right? I think it's very realistic. There are companies out there who are going to say, like, imagine this. You're a developer at a corporation, and you have the opportunity to say, look, We've got this Angular 1 app. Angular 1, Angular 2's been out now for two years or three years, whatever it is. And this our Angular 1 app is still going. It's still working fine, but we're still upgrading it and migrating it. And we're having a little bit of difficulty maybe finding developers who want to do use it, whatever. So you propose, let's run the migration process so that it works with Angular 2. But let's just do new features in Angular 2 and leave all the existing Angular 1 features alone. We have no plan to go back and rewrite 100% of our features. We're just going to do new features in Angular 2. It'll make some people happy. It'll let us use more, more modern tools and techniques. And so management buys off on it because the overhead of that is extremely low. And so now you have this application that lives forever in Angular 1, Angular 2. I think that's very realistic. Or another scenario where you've got an application that you start migrating, hoping that you're going to migrate it fully to Angular 2, and the resources just run out. Right? It just turns out that it's taking too long. There's the business priorities change. So it's like, well, we can't go back and rewrite everything, or there's pieces that just aren't important enough for, enough for us to rewrite. And so you move on. I think that's a very realistic scenario. In fact, I know a very large company, a very prominent company that has a huge Angular 1 application that still has about 20% of its code written in Backbone. No, there's no question that it will happen, Joe. Yeah. Joe, I want to expand on one of your scenarios because I agree with you. Let, I know something about large Angular 1 applications. And right. let's say I've got one, two, or many super large Angular 1 applications in production on public websites. Mm-hmm. You know, doing business. Let's say I run um, let's buy wardbellsclothes.com. Mm. And that's a massively popular website with, you know, hugely popular hours. Yeah. So it's all written in Angular 1, and it's really attractive to me as a business owner, even developer, to say, I just want to leave my Angular 1 investment alone, but continue to expand by adding new features to this web app in Angular 2. Mm-hmm. So let's say that that works out, and I, and I get around the routing issues, as you mentioned, still use like Angular 1 routing. Can I, do I need two different build processes then? Or how do I deploy these things? Do I still keep the existing app deployed the way I'm doing with my regular DevOps process? and then now have a new build that deploys the Angular 2 app, or do I have to kind of shimmy my Angular 2 build into the deployment of the Angular 1 app? Um, you'd probably, sh- I would assume you'd shimmy them both together, but builds, you know, builds are so funny. Now, I'm not talking just like, hey, you got Webpack in. I'm talking like a real big, complex production build for a big app, right? It's, it's far greater than I just have Webpack in there, right? It's much bigger than that. 
And most people I, don't have Webpack for, for existing apps, right, too. I mean, that's right. relatively new. So we're talking yeah. Bower, NPM, all this right. crazy stuff. Yeah. I think that most people will find that it's best to just take your existing build process and incorporate the Angular 2 part into it. Very early on, you turn your Angular 2 code into ES5 code, and then it just it just kind of goes down the same funnel at that point as your Angular 1 code does. In fact, I believe it's very advantageous to go through and turn all your Angular 1 code into TypeScript really quick and just make that a big a part of your build process. So what about module loading there in that case then? So if I take my Angular 2 code and turn it to ES5 and I'm not using module loaders today, how do right. I do that? So when it gets turned into ES5, the modules are written into it, right? The, so the system, well, I've been using System.js. It's its code is already uh, included as part of that deployment, so that it handles all the module loading for you. It's okay. Sort of so you're, gonna, into that. you're saying right. So you're saying turn it to ES5 and include System.js, so it helps you yep. do the module loading. Gotcha. Yeah, that's that's been my experience. Hey, Joe. You know, as a practical matter, what is the role of testing in a migration? In particular, would, would you do end-to-end testing? What would you do to so that you could have some confidence that as you were um, moving forward, your app was still working? Well, He'd farm it out to you, Ward. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously, uh, whether it's Angular 2 or Angular 1, you can still unit test each piece. The test unit testing scenarios are quite a bit different between the two, right? But as you migrate code to Angular 2, if you've already been unit testing your code, you'll want to unit test the new code. So you'll have to learn how to unit test in Angular 2 and incorporate that into your process as well. But the end-to-end -end testing, I think, is great. But I think that most companies, let's deal with the realistic scenario. Your existing company, you've already got an existing product. Whatever you're doing to it now, you're probably not going to fundamentally change that just because you added Angular 2. It's not. Hopefully, it would be nice if you could use Angular 2 as an excuse to say, okay, uh, now that we got Angular 2, we're going to start unit testing everything and start end-to-end -end testing everything. That would be great if that's what you got to do. Well, I, I think that you don't have to swallow. I mean, that's a big thing to swallow. I'm going to suggest that what people consider doing, because it's really easy to set up protractor tests, and I hope we're going to have some documentation on that in not too distant future. But that's end-to-end uh, -end tests. And, you know, you just start by having some smoke tests at, at the point where you're doing the, the migration. And it doesn't have to be, um, you don't have to have a, a full coverage here. We're just talking about something that makes sure you haven't fallen off a cliff. Uh, and that can start with three, four, five tests. And before you know it, you know, you sort of add oh, like nice another sweet. one. And, and you got something that helps build your confidence and build mm -hmm. the company's confidence as you do it. And you focus those tests, not on the whole thing, but on the thing that you're changing. All right. Um, so you make it part of your roadmap for getting from, uh, you know, for taking over a portion of the old Angular one. And you say, you know, while I'm at it, I'm going to build it right into the schedule that I'm going to add four or five smoke tests in end to end testing, which therefore doesn't in, doesn't matter what technology you've got under the hood, whether it's Angular one or Angular two, just to make sure that the before and the after line up. Uh, I think that that should be part of your plan. That's I agree with that absolutely. In reality, you should, if you don't aren't doing that already, you should be doing that regardless of if you're migrating or not. But the migration is a great time and reason to add, to do that. If you are, haven't been doing an end testing already, throw that in because, like you said, that can just it gives you a huge piece of confidence to just know. All right, I just migrated the route. Does the app still work? Right. 
And I'm going to tell you, this is a time saver because oh, the yeah. alternative is having somebody, and I've been watching this, somebody go back and, and they're afraid to touch anything because then they have to <laughs> test it again. And now, mm-hmm. and then they do, and then they got somebody sitting there playing like a co, you know, a typing monkey, a user monkey cl- clacking away on the keys. This is, I think that it quickly repays itself to have just simple unit, not, I mean, not unit tests, I'm not even talking about those, just simple end-to-end tests to, to, to um, validate that you're not falling apart. Absolutely. Absolutely. No doubt about it. I mean, when I was migrating the code base that I migrated, uh, I didn't use any end-to-end tests. I had some unit tests, but they were mostly for show, just to show, like, hey, what's it like to have a unit test and have to change it as we change the code and then eventually migrate to Angular 2, right? I didn't have a big suite of tests, and it was a pain Every time I changed something, I went back and manually tested, and hopefully I manually tested all the pieces that it touched because I didn't want to manually test the entire application. Right. right? It's a huge pain. So I've been doing a, a lot of this work lately in preparation for uh, an, a Pluralsight course that I'm putting out on migration specifically. Half of it's out, the part where you prepare your code for my Angular 2, your Angular 1 code, you prepare it for Angular 2, and the other half where you actually do the migration will be out in a couple of months probably, but... Um, well, I hope you have a module. I hope you have a module on uh, on uh, on this. If you can squeeze and it, and then yeah, absolutely. I definitely will be uh, including something like that. So, well, almost for sure, we'll be including something like that. So, uh, it it is a great time to put in that sort of thing. Uh, put in some end to end tests. Absolutely. You know, this reminded me talking about the course that I'm doing. Like, I've got this. Uh, several hours just on preparing your code for Angular 2. And there's a lot that could be done to your Angular 1 app to prepare it for Angular 2 in a realistic way. Um, I think there's a lot of blog posts out there about... So this is a time I want to get back to uh, Lucas's point really quick because we're about to end uh, about running Angular 2 and Angular... writing Angular 1 and Angular 2 form and being able to transfer them over. Um, Because I've, you know done some migrations and seen what kinds of changes actually help. And I've seen people write blog posts about changes that I don't think help. And so I want to talk about that really quickly. Lucas is our final kind of point. Hit me. Tell me everything. So you said you don't think that they're far, very far apart once you get your Angular 1 code. I would disagree with that because I think the fundamental underlying things with how change detection works. And of course, something I didn't mention that should be mentioned is when you do run Angular 1 and Angular 2 side by side, the change detection is actually integrated so that if change detection happens on one side, it will fire the change detection on the other as well and back and forth with some potential either bugs or exceptions that I, I, I've seen a couple of places where that's not happened. But So the change detection happens. But I think that there's still some real big fundamental core differences that anything beyond a very simple, uh, straightforward application, yeah, you convert it to an ES6 class, you can convert cl- services to classes, and you can convert uh, components directives to classes. Uh, you could do that and make it look a lot better so that when you do migrate it, in some cases, you don't have to do a lot of rewrite. But I think the real complex, real business apps we're, are going to we're going to find that they're just really far away. And when we do migrate them to Angular 2, there's going to be a fair amount of stuff we're going to have to rewrite in order to make it work with Angular 2. So I feel like they're farther apart than what you seem to imply. But I'm interested to hear your counterpoint on that, Lucas. Hmm. So, just to be clear, um, when you talk about Angular 1 and Angular 2 living together, um, that is not necessarily what I was referring to. I was thinking more in terms of like the shapes. Right. 
of the Angulars, I think you get a lot closer to, I think once you are a lot closer, it's a lot easier to say that, okay, we're just going to just now flip from one to the other. Um, again, I think this is, we're trying to basically take a really nuanced, complex topic yeah. and kind of cram it into an hour. I think, you know, it really depends on a lot of things and how your app is segmented. Um, but I would say, you know, first and foremost, is I think of people. I think people have this real misconception that Angular One and Angular Two are night and day different. And I think because the underlying change detection, um, I think yes, I think that does make kind of the fabric a little bit different. But in, from a high level, from the shapes, that if you write Angular how we did three years ago, yes, that's significantly different. But when you're writing modern modern Angular One using component-driven architecture, they're very, very close. And I, I'm hoping and I'm, I believe that you're going to start to see those lines start to blur to where it just becomes easier and easier to, to blend those together. Well, it's certainly been my experience that if you do take these steps where you write your Angular 1 using TypeScript and ES6 classes, um, which I talk again about in my course and show exactly how to do this, if, or there's certainly plenty of blog posts that'll talk about this as well, that that it definitely helps. But the moment you finally take an Angular 1 service or component and move it over to Angular 2, that you'll end up doing a lot more work than you would hope to, uh, no matter, and my guess is, no matter how much stuff they backport into Angular 1, that will be true. But maybe I could be wrong. It'll be interesting if we start seeing like RxJS become a first-class member of Angular 1, right? That could really start to make things different as well. So, or even a router that just worked seamlessly between the yep. two where you could segment on routes. I think that would be a big one. Yep, that would be so, a big one too. Just a thought. Yeah, just a thought. So, all right, well, I think we're out of time, right, Chuck? I was going to say, I'm going to be that guy. <laughs> You're that guy. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. That's right. Um, so, yeah, let's go ahead and do some picks. Uh, Lucas, do you want to start us off with picks? Yes. Yeah, so a show that I recently watched, uh, I was just looking around Amazon Prime, and I saw this new show called Eat the World by Emeril Lagasse, and it absolutely blew my mind. I mean, out of all the picks I've done over the entire hundred plus episodes this is probably one of my favorite picks ever the reason being is developers when if you were to go watch this having a developer mindset and knowing the community around the, de the development community there is such a profound parallel between the experiences that emerald has with these different chefs around the world and how he's affected people's lives and their careers and just the camaraderie. And it was really interesting for me to see this dynamic being part of a very vibrant and welcoming community that's you know really done a lot for my career, that's allowed me to serve them. And uh, I thought it was just really interesting to see this dynamic that we are really familiar with in the context of food is, you know, Emerald travels around the world, spends time with his friends, you know, is, is helping people, promoting them and mentoring them. So Phenomenal, phenomenal uh, series. It's like six episodes, and I'm madly in love with it. Cool. Ward, what are your picks? I'm sorry that I drew a blank, although I'm really intrigued by the Emerald thing, and I have long said that if you like to cook, then you can like to program. So uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to giving that series a try. 
right, Ward, what are your picks? Or not Ward. <laughs> <laughs> You're just going to keep asking until I have some. That's right. Joe, what are your picks? Uh, I'd like to hear, hear Ward's picks first. <laughs> Ward who? <laughs> I have a, I have a, a to avoid. Um, whatever you do, there's this new movie coming out that involves some crazy <laughs> flying spaceship kind of crap. Don't talk about Star should... Trek like that. <laughs> <laughs> it was just uh, the 50th anniversary and you're talking uh, bad about Star Trek. Uh, yeah, I could do that too. Um, but uh, yeah, this rogue thing, it's got to go. It's time to put that series to bed. <laughs> oh, you're barking up that wrong money tree. All right. Uh, is it my turn now? Yeah, go ahead, Joe. All right. Well, obviously, I want to uh, mention again my course on Pluralsight, uh, which talks a lot in depth, in huge depth, about all the stuff that we've talked through and goes walks through migrating a very realistic, like this was actually production code application that, that I built, migrating it from Angular 1 to Angular 2. The first half is out where it talks about preparing your code, and the second half will be out oh, probably by uh, the end of October, end of November, something like that. So I want to mention that. And then as far as fun, I want to talk about this awesome movie about space travel. This is a, just an amazing, amazing movie. And everybody should go out and see it. And Ratchet it's called Link. The Last Starfighter. <laughs> I, I was over at the store <laughs> and I saw this Blu-ray of The Last Starfighter, one of the very first films to incorporate any CGI at all. That was decades ago, wasn't it? It was decades yeah, I don't remember when in the '80s it was made, but it was it was a long time ago. Great show. I can't. I haven't watched it yet. I'm going to force my children to watch it with me. I rem, I just have all these fond memories, and I'm sure it's going to end up being like terrible. But she's got '80s hair. She's she. Yeah. <laughs> yep. She's got total '80s hair. The main girl in it. I'm so excited about this kid that plays video games. He's so good at it. It turns out the video games were in a, a recruitment tactic for this elite unit of uh, starship fighter squadron, right? So they get this kid from Earth, and he joins up this starship fighter squadron in space because he was so good at a video game. Every kid's dream. Come on. So I'm excited to watch it with my kids, and I remember it being great, and so I'm going to recommend it based on my recollection from 20 years ago. And, and by uh, the way, if you haven't seen the movie, you can read the book. It's called Armada. <laughs> uh, I wish I could pick Armada, but I got like a little bit into Armada, and I was just not impressed. It was nowhere near good, as good as Ready Player One. So oh, he got a lot of heat for that. Well, Ready? I'm going to have to tell you then that the best of this list is Galaxy Quest, which is an absolute oh, must. Yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely love Galaxy Quest. They need one of those for Star Wars Homeward. <laughs> they need it for them all. To me, that like finishes it for all the entire genre. Oh, that's such a great movie. All right, that's it for me. I will go ahead and throw out a couple of picks. Um, I've been listening to this book series. I think I've mentioned it before. Their books are by Terry Brooks, and uh, it's the Shannara books. And it turns out that MTV made a TV series on it, which is kind of fun. And I've been watching those, and I have to say the books are way, way, way better but it's kind of fun to just watch and kind of see some of these characters there, even though they're nothing like the characters in the book and the plot's pretty different. But anyway, um, it's been fun. So I've been enjoying that. Um, I'm also going to pick a new tool that I've been using. I've been using it over the last uh, few days. And I'm actually using it for Angular Remote Conf. It's called Webinar Jam Studio. And it 
is webinar software. It's built around uh, Google Hangouts. And the reason that I switched, because I was using Crowdcast before, the primary reason was that I wanted HD video and Crowdcast has their own proprietary thing that just doesn't give you HD video. Um, and I want to be able to provide that to people during and after the, the fact. I'm also doing a series of webinars and I want people to be able to get the webinars in HD. So uh, I'm using it. We used it for the Freelancer Show Q&A this morning. And then um, I also did, uh, I'm going to be doing a webinar tomorrow as we record this. So it, it would have been last week. You can get the recording and I'll make sure everything redirects properly. But it's five mistakes that are keeping you from getting hired. And it's basically, yeah, I'm just discussing what you need to do to make your job search that much more effective. And then I have a series of webinars that I'm putting on for the rest of the year. Um, and we're talking about apprenticeship programs and using meetup groups, forums, email lists, uh, how to build and write your resume, um, how to do job interviews, how to become a corporate insider so you can get hired, um, podcasting and blogging, building your portfolio. I mean, all this stuff, open source, salary negotiation. So if you're interested in any of that, just go check out the, um, the five mistakes webinar. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then that'll show you where you can go to get access to everything else. Um, I'm also writing a book. It's called Get a Coder Job. And a lot of this material comes out of that. So anyway, definitely go check those out. Um, and also go check out the videos from Angular Remote Comp. Joe, are you doing some kind of workshop that you want to promote while we're doing this? Um, yeah, kind of. I'm doing a little free workshop down in Fort Lauderdale. It's just a half-day workshop on migrating, so go way into depth on the stuff that we talked about today and actually get to some like nitty-gritty and bones. It's it's absolutely free. If you uh, Right now, I'm not 100% sure if I'm going to hold it because I just haven't seen if there's enough interest. By the time this records, I will probably will have decided whether I'm going to hold it or not. So you could sh go down there and check it out. Uh, go to ng-learn.com. And you can pick up a free ticket if you can make it down to Fort Lauderdale, Saturday the 8th of October. So if the tickets are there on ng-learn.com, then by the time this comes out, then you'll know that I am actually having the, the workshop. If not, then I'm not having it, and sorry, maybe next time. So there we go. That's, that's it. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up the show. Uh, thank you, everyone, for coming, and we'll catch you all next week.